You know, the psalmist says, so teach us to number our days that we may present to thee a heart of wisdom. A number of guys have already talked about the fact that we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for everything. And so the psalmist advises us to be able to present to God a heart of wisdom. And let me suggest, men, that that has uh, very little to do with IQ, that every guy in this room is capable of presenting to guy to God a heart of wisdom. Because the wisdom of which the Bible speaks has to do with right conduct. It has to do with a correct perception of reality. And it has to do with stewarding your life in this temporal world in light of the eternal world, which is your eventual permanent home. In fact, it is your home now. And the scripture admonishes you again and again and again that your citizenship is in heaven and that you are to act like it. Now, I want to wed that that thought, that verse, with another one, and it's in Matthew chapter 6, verses 22 to 23. It says this. This is Jesus speaking. It's the Sermon on the Mount. And he says this. The eye is the lamp of the body. So then, if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Gentlemen, Jesus is not talking about these two things in the front of your head. He's talking about the eye of the mind. He's talking about how you perceive. And gentlemen, your eyes see things happening. But what your eyes cannot tell you is what those events mean. Your mind tells you what they mean. Let me just give you a trivial example. Those jets that flew into various buildings on 9-11. Everybody saw the same event. But the interpretation of those event, of that same event was very different depending on your worldview. To some folks, though the perpetrators of that were heroes. And to others, they were the opposite. Why? Because it all depends on your worldview. And gentlemen, you are going through life witnessing X, Y, and Z, whatever it is that's happening. But Jesus' point is, you have to understand what is happening. And I suggest, men, that if you do not, if, if your eye is not clear and you do not understand, you will never present to God a heart of wisdom. Now, men, this presentation of a heart of wisdom to God is done in enemy territory. 1 John 5.19 says, We know that we are of God 
and the whole world, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And let me suggest that he has woven a system of lies that is a worldview that is designed to keep you from being the man that God wants you to be. Gentlemen, you are in a war. War is being waged against you. You may or may not be fighting back, but war is being waged against you, even as we sit here. It is a spiritual war. It is a religious war. And it is to the death. And men, the perpetrators of this are very, very zealous about their religion. And I'm sorry to say they're more zealous than we are. Now they have the attack on Christianity started first against Christian morality. That started in earnest. It's it's been going on since the fall of of Eden, right? that's, That's human history. But in earnest, it started back in the 60s in this country, in the West. And that attack on Christian morality has been wholly successful. We Christians live like the heathen in so many ways. The second prong of attack is on worldview. Jim, let me suggest to you that if, if the If the only culture that you know is your own, then you do not understand your own culture. You can't understand it from within. You'll never read it accurately. Now, you can address that by traveling to other countries and so on, and that helps. Let me suggest the best way to do it is the Bible. Because if you read the Bible straight up, if you read the Bible the way a first century fisherman would read the Bible, that creates a culture. And that culture is different. The culture of the Bible is different from the culture in which you live. And it will help you to understand your culture. But you have to read the Bible not through your culture, but straight up. And then you read your culture through the Bible. Any questions? Now, gentlemen, Christian morality has been destroyed. I want to suggest to you the Christian worldview is all but destroyed. Destroyed. 
It's on, its, it's on life support. And what is happening now, what is going on in our culture today, is an attempt to destroy reality and to replace it with a new reality. And the objective is to erase the image of God from every man, woman, and child on earth and to eject Jesus Christ from this planet. And they will not stop of their own volition. They're serious about it, and it's coming. I'm not a prophet. I don't know when, but it's coming. Let me pray for us, and we'll move on. Lord, I want to thank you for the privilege of being with these guys. I ask, Lord Jesus, that your Holy Spirit would speak to each of us. I pray that you would still our hearts, that we might hear his voice. Lord, we long to be with you and we long to be like you. I pray, Lord, that you would use this short time in some small measure to that end. For Christ's sake. Any questions? Yeah, Dan? Do you mind just elaborating or giving us an example for, you mentioned the Christian worldview, or I'm sorry, morality, worldview, and reality. And just an, maybe an example of each one or how I could separate them. To me, they're just big, bigger words. Dan, let me suggest that our generation believes things about the role of the sexes that no one ever believed in the whole history of the world before us. So men as head of the home and wives as helpmeets. It was obvious to everybody, even whether they had a Bible or not. That's just how, that's how it was. Nobody believes that anymore. We're modern. Our sexual mores are courting premarital, extramarital sex is ho-hum. Nobody, nobody cares anymore. There's a movie made in 1960 called Where the Boys Are. And if you want to see what the sexual mores were at that time and how different they are from today, it's an interesting movie to watch. It's not that great a movie, but it shows that difference. I'm going to talk about worldview and reality in just a minute. So if you could give me a couple of, couple of minutes and we'll get there. Anybody else? 
Okay. Grab a mic, please. So one of the <clears throat> things that I, I think is very interesting for us in our society today is how we have, uh, <clears throat> even from a Christian perspective, have, <clears throat> I think I, I call it like picking up extra baggage along the way, where I think many, many traditional folks will gravitate towards you know, what we consider to be the right wing, right? So, and myself included, but um, how, do, how do you reconcile some of the, uh, we call it the, like the militaristic side with the pacifist uh, aspect of the Bible, and we sit there and all of a sudden it becomes a God and country and military and guns kind of a thing. How do you, how do you reconcile that? Because I think, like, I'm not even sure that when we say we're going to look at things through the Bible, I think a lot of people have very, very, very big, uh, differences in beliefs or interpretations of that before you even get started with getting clouded up with uh, some of the social decay or things like that. So I suggest to you, it? my brother, that God has a commitment to one nation and one nation only, and that is Israel. That commitment to Israel is inviolable. That commitment does not apply to the United States of America. And when we conflate the interests of the United States with those of the church, we err greatly. Let me suggest this problem entered the church probably around the 4th century AD when Constantine became emperor of Rome and he became a Christian. And at that point, the interests of Rome and the interests of the church began to intertwine. And it's been that way ever since in the West. And we Christians have done a very, very poor job of unraveling those two. Thank you. Okay. Gentlemen, all the most important truths are eternal and spiritual rather than temporal and natural. And you have one and only one source of undiluted truth, and that is the Bible. Everything else contains errors, and that includes, and it especially includes, the Internet. If you are relying on the internet for your education, your understanding of the world is going to be marginal at best. So the question I want to put before each of us is, how much of your worldview is informed by the Bible? Now, men, none of us are original thinkers. You know, just think for a moment about the contents of your, of your mind. How did they all get there? How did all those thoughts, how did your worldview get there? And I would suggest to you that we all learned from a multitude of other people, whether they were your parents, your teachers, your pastors, your peers, 
and all the various media inputs. Now that's another way of saying that knowledge is socially constructed. That is, you develop your worldview from those around you. That means that your social circle, your society, those to whom you assign the privilege of influencing your mind becomes paramount. Who gets to tell you what the truth is? And who are you going to believe? And my thesis is that our society, including our church society, is unbiblical. And it is because we have learned from the unbelievers rather than the Bible. Now, gentlemen, there's a broad strokes way to think about this. And it, it falls under the rubric of the myth of progress. And men, our culture has been captivated by the myth of progress. And it is just that. It is a myth. And I would encourage you to read a little essay by C.S. Lewis called The Funeral of a Great Myth. It's, it's fairly short, but he talks about this. Can you say the title again, Jerry? Yes, The Funeral of a Great Myth. Gentlemen, it's very, it's noteworthy that in Daniel 12.4, Daniel receives the prophecy that as the end of time approaches, knowledge will increase. And my guess is Daniel heard that statement from the lips of the angel and said, huh, how the heck is that going to happen? How do you increase knowledge? And the way it was done is through science, right? Isaac Newton invents calculus, then discovers that the laws of nature are written in, in differential equations, and the scientists are off to the races. And we start learning more and more and more and more and more about what? About nature. Gentlemen, what does increased knowledge about nature tell you about things moral and things spiritual? Nothing. Correct. Nothing. But because we know more scientifically, we believe that we know more morally and we know more spiritually. And that is a lie. In fact, I would offer for your consideration, I'm not going to take the time to go through it, but I'd suggest to you that Romans 1, 18 to the end of the chapter, outline the spiritual and moral history of the world. And in verse 24, Paul talks about the increase of heterosexual sin. And then in verses 26 and 27, he talks about the increase of homosexual sin. 
And then in verse 28, he talks about a depraved mind. And gentlemen, let me suggest that that is where we are on that descent into the pit. We have attained a depraved mind. And we are willing to entertain anything. Now, gentlemen, if you think it cannot get worse, stick around. It is getting worse. As I say, they will not stop until Jesus Christ is gone. That's what this is about. It is about the eviction of him from the planet. And if you want to follow him, then you've got to go too. Questions? Oh, here comes Brandon. <laughs> am, I, am I allowed to ask a question? No. Um, this might be a little bit application, but uh, for if we are taking the moral truth from, from the Bible and from Jesus, how does that translate into some of these issues that it's like, well, that's what you believe, and, and, and we fully believe that truth, but as society, let's say, it's like my moral truth that um, only a man and woman should be together rather than you know, homo homosexual relationships, for example. But there could be other, there could be other uh, beliefs that maybe they don't impact me, right? It's like they, they don't proclaim to believe in Jesus Christ and in the, in the, in the Bible, so how does that, I don't know, um, how do you reconcile that as a believer living here today, how much you impose your moral truth on other people? I don't know if that makes yeah. sense. Let me give it a shot and then come back at me if I haven't addressed it. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul outlines what to do if, say for example, I am in willful unrepentant sin. I divorce my wife, I take up from a, uh, with another woman, and yet I still profess Jesus Christ. What Paul tells you to do, come to me, confront me with that, and if I say, eh, Brandon, baloney, just leave me alone, then you're to bring one or two other guys, and if I won't listen to you, then you're to tell the whole church, and I'm to be excommunicated. Okay? If, on the other hand, an unbeliever does the same thing, Paul says don't criticize them. That's not our job. Our job is not to judge those outside the faith. So let's take another example. Let's take the dude in the dress. If the dude in the dress claims Christ, you have one course of action. They're incompatible. You cannot do that and follow Jesus Christ. On the other hand, if the dude in the dress is not a believer, then what he needs is Jesus. Then we can talk about the dress. I guess uh, my question would be, how do, how, do we, how do we translate that into, you know, without going too far politically, how do we translate that into, right, you know, regulation and laws and so forth, uh, you know, uh, rights and that kind of thing as far as uh, uh, the political system goes. So what I was talking about earlier, very early in the church, 
around the fourth century, the interests of the state and the interests of the church went like this. And I understand why they did it. And they had some good reasons. But the church was never clear about this and never stood up properly. The mission of the church, which Jesus Christ himself will build, his commission to you is to make disciples, not to improve society. Your, your relationship with your government is a stewardship issue. You have to decide before God what that looks like in the same way that your relationship with your house and your car is a stewardship issue. You've got to decide. But you have to understand your purpose is the depopulation of hell and the population of heaven. My brother, the problems, every problem we face is a spiritual problem. And spiritual problems do not lend themselves to political solutions. Say that. Make that last one more time. Our problems are spiritual. And spiritual problems do not lend themselves to political solutions. Anybody else? As a follow-up yeah. to that. Excuse me one yes, second. This, this gentleman, no, stay right there, please. Yeah, our problems are spiritual. And spiritual problems do not lend themselves to political solutions. To say that another way, we're not going to vote our way out of the predicament we're in. <laughs> yes, sir. So I, I agree with, with everything that you're saying, but in my mind, I have trouble reconciling the story of John the baptizer going to King Herod and telling him that he's living in sin. So I know that's just one example, and I don't want to go too far down a tangent, but how like exactly what you're saying is true, not judging the world if they're not in Christ, but at the same time, you have the example of John the baptizer going to Herod. So, Herod was a Jew. Okay. I see. So he was, yeah, he was trying to hold him accountable to, I got gotcha. you. Hi, Jerry. Hey, Ken. Good to see you again. Long time no see, bro. I'll see, I'll see, yeah, I'll see you in a couple months, huh? I, that's the rumor. <laughs> you may not come. I hear what you're saying, but it sounds like you're kind of talking in a vacuum. Here we are in this world, Okay. Would you not, well, let me ask you, do you agree that part of our issue is that we have ignored or turned our eyes away from the world and sin and not confronted it and allowed it to fester and grow? No. I mean, let me, you were around, how old are you? 66, thanks. Oh, you're a child. <laughs> not, a, not in this group. I feel like Methuselah. Go ahead, I'm sorry. I was, I was born in 1950. I, went, I started college in 1968. I grew up in a world in which if, if a girl got pregnant out of wedlock, it was scandalous. Just, are you kidding me? So by the time 1968 <clears throat> rolls around, the, the sexual revolution 
is in full swing. There are willing women everywhere. And Ken, I cannot recall, and, and, and Christian guys were involved. I personally never witnessed the church taking a young man and saying, my brother, you must stop what you're doing or we will discipline you. I don't ever remember that happening. Now, I'm sure it happened at some level, someplace. But as a body, we did not confront that. So that was my generation. We got a little older. We got married. We started divorcing our wives. And again, the church never came to us and said, you cannot do that. And if you do, we excommunicate you. We didn't address it. And in that process, we lost our moral authority. We as a body of Christ have no moral authority today. So now the homosexuals come along. On what ground do we say to them, you can't have yours? Right. So we never took care of business, and now it's gone. That ship has sailed. Now, we can start by being biblical with one another. But when's the last time you saw what I'm talking about take place in a church? Not in a church. That's what I'm saying. So I'm asking you, how do, you, how do we turn the tide? I mean, we've been asleep. Turn the tide by being biblical with one another, one guy at a time. We got here one guy at a time, and that's the only way out. Hey, Ron. Hi, Jerry. Can you speak to, I'm, I'm, I'm recalling a statement that the head of Disney made uh, regarding the LGBTQ um, uh, uh, community and their support for it. And he said that, uh, I'm paraphrasing, that uh, we're telling stories. Disney is telling stories of inclusiveness and all these things. They are part of that war. So can you speak to the double-mindedness of Christians in our profession and our pocketbook? You mean by going to Disney movies and stuff? I'm just saying wherever, wherever that our ability to recognize the combatants and our willingness to partake in what's going on without necessarily realizing it. Let me state it better. Um, the degree to which our profession has to be overwhelmingly the guiding force of what we do and the many ways in which perhaps we as Christians are uh, unwittingly on the other side of the team. Jesus says in the Upper Room Discourse that we are in the world but not of the world. Every, every guy's got to make the decision for himself before God what that looks like. I can't tell you what it looks like for you, Ron. The truth is, I'm not even sure what it looks like for me. If I'm going to sit around and wait 
for a Christian business with whom I associate, I think I'm on an island. But I have no idea what the application of that looks like, other than personal purity and personal um, commitment to whatever the Bible says I do. Anything else? Oh, let's see where the heck we are now. <laughs> That's true. Okay. So as I said, Christian morality is dead as Julius Caesar in the church. And gentlemen, that cannot be true for the men in this room. You cannot, you cannot, you cannot tolerate that. You've got to be biblical with yourself, and you've got to be biblical with everybody else. If the Bible says X, then X it is. Period. Full stop. There was a recent poll by George Barna, and I want to suggest to you that based on that poll, not only is the church not embracing a biblical morality, it's not embracing a biblical worldview. So his poll was of exclusively self-proclaimed evangelicals. And he wanted to find out if they had a Christian worldview. And here are his criteria for having a Christian worldview. Absolute moral truth exists. God is the all-knowing and all-powerful creator and sustainer. The Bible is his accurate and reliable message to us that we should rely on Christ and cannot earn our way into heaven and that Satan exists. That's it. Doesn't include things like obedience, ministry, um, E squared, the existence of hell, and so on. 81% of self-proclaimed Christians do not have a Christian worldview, according to Barna, based on that very low bar. 81% got it wrong. So, the church abandoned biblical morality. It has now abandoned a biblical worldview. And what we are now facing is a rebellion against physical reality. See, when you rebel against biblical morality and biblical worldview, you are rebelling against spiritual reality. And that has consequences. And the consequence is the rebellion is now against physical reality itself. Let me give you some examples. <clears throat> the right to kill one's unborn baby for any or no reason is a foundational right. Some men can have babies. There are a multitude of sexes slash genders and even children can choose to be whatever they wish. 
without their parents' consent. We don't know what a woman is. Your race defines who you are. Parents have no business in their children's education. The police should be defunded and criminal behavior decriminalized. Climate change is a moral issue. And the existence of the metaverse. Gentlemen, this is, again, not going to stop. I watched my generation take the thinking of my parents and radicalize their thinking. We took their thinking much further than they anticipated. And then I watched my generation make the same mistake with our kids as our kids took our ridiculous thinking and radicalized it. And that is continuing to progress or regress, if you will, in that direction. Any discussion about that? <clears throat> Gentlemen, if you're not scared, you're not in touch with reality. Jerry, can you elaborate a little bit on where you said the church lost the, the Christian morality and then Christian worldview? Do you think that's just stemming from fear of being made irrelevant in society, that if they did put up these barriers, people just wouldn't come? Do you think that is the root of it? Or I'm trying to think of why, why it drifted. Is it just sin or self-preservation? Just why, why, why did this drift? There was a genius move made at the beginning of all of this. And that genius move was the combination of the sexual revolution and the rise of feminism. And it went something like this. We women want equality with men. We want to be able to compete in the marketplace with you. We want all the same opportunities you have we want to have sex without commitment. We, we say that again. You want to have sex without commitment? That's the holy grail of horny men, right? <laughs> and so we, we bought it. We said, okay, we'll take that deal. And in doing that, we lost our honor, and our women lost their virtue. Now, how that goes back, a genie goes back in the bottle, I don't see it except for a man purposing in his heart, not in my home, not on my watch. Once that happened, it was a row of dominoes. A one-night stand and we sold out. We sold Jesus Christ for a one-night stand. Wow. How are you going to talk to him about that? Anything else? 
Gentlemen, this rebellion against spiritual and physical reality are related. And it is related to the fact that the mind cannot tell the difference between real and imaginary. Just think about virtual reality. When you're experiencing it, it seems real. If you, in the virtual reality that you're watching, you're falling, you feel like you're falling, and so on. And if the mind cannot have real truth to think about, it manufactures its own. Jude 8 says it this way, Yet in the same way these men also by dreaming, by dreaming, defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. Our world today has been built on such dreams. And the dreams are lies. As I said earlier, we're seeking to erase the image of God from ourselves and to replace the creation of God with our own creations. And it is full-on rebellion. Second Corinthians 4, 17 through 18 says the following, For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are unseen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are unseen are eternal. Gentlemen, that which is spiritual is of a harder reality than that which is temporal. It is stronger. It is firmer. Are you seeing? Are you looking? As you walk through your day, that spiritual reality that the Bible says is all around you and you can't see with your physical eyes, but are you putting on the armor of God every morning? Girding your loins with the truth. Putting on the breastplate of righteousness. Have you committed to the truth of the scripture? Have you committed to the righteousness, the morality of the Bible. Every single morning when you get up. Jesus, I want to be in your yoke. I want to walk with you. I don't want to walk alone. I've done that. I don't want to do that. I want to walk with you. I don't want to leave that yoke. And gentlemen, that yoke of Christ is the only safe place in the universe. Every place else is danger. Questions? Ken? I gather your stream of thought. Basically, these underpinnings to the point where we can't even distinguish what truth looks like as the plan of the enemy. And at that point, when we are so completely confused, we won't know which direction to go. Is that? Ken, again, what we are doing today is we are reading the Bible through our culture. 
we have to completely reverse that. And men, there, there's a point in a man's walk with Jesus when he needs to say this to himself, Lord, you have given me enough that I know that this book is true, that it is about you, and I commit fully to it. And if I read something in there that disagrees with my culture or that disagrees with my own personal beliefs, I will fall on my knees and rejoice because you have shown me someplace where I'm wrong. <coughs> where I'm wrong. And I believe you, I believe the Bible, and I reject me, and I reject my culture. Gentlemen, when that happens, when you find something with which you disagree, it is a holy moment. It is a very holy moment because you have a choice. Don't make the wrong one. Anybody else? So how do we regain a biblical worldview and morality? Um, I've more or less said it. It is viewing the Bible as the very Word of God without error and viewing everything else through that grid. <clears throat> There's an ancient parable from uh, the Greek thinker Archilochus. And it goes like this. It's, about, it's called the uh, hedgehog and the fox. It says, the fox knows many small things. The hedgehog knows one big thing. It's a parable about people. And hedgehogs see life through one grid. Now, we have a lot of hedgehogs in the world today where they see everything through the grid of gender or through the grid of race or through the grid of the environment and so on. I suggest to you that it is, you need to be a, both a hedgehog and a fox. For Christian hedgehogs, that grid through which you see the world is the Bible. Everything else is just foxes. They're little things. But you have to understand them through that organizing principle of the Bible. If you misidentify the hedgehog in your life, and gentlemen, everybody's got one. Everybody's got a grid through which they view life. You get that wrong. And it's like those words of Jesus in Matthew 6, 22, 23. If your eye is bad, then your whole body is dark. So that Barna study that I quoted earlier tells us that though we Christians say we have a biblical worldview, we do not. And gentlemen, I don't, know, I don't know most of the guys in this room. I don't know whether you do or you don't. But if you are a church-going man, 
the chances that those in the body of which you are a part have a Christian worldview, according to Barna, is 19%. So how did we get this screwed up worldview, this screwed up morality? And I'll suggest to you it has to do with three other books. The first book is the Bible. But the other three books that we have misread is the book of man, that is, how do we understand man? The book of nature, how do we understand nature? And the book of history, how do we understand it? Colossians 1 talks about Jesus. 15 through 18 says the following. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Gentlemen, life is a synthetic whole. Everything fits together. Your personal life, the history of the human race, nature, and the history of every individual, they all fit together. And they're all about Jesus Christ. And men, the day is very rapidly approaching when the only thing you're going to care about is what Jesus thinks of you. And so if you're going to be a man who presents to the Lord a heart of wisdom, you're living every day thinking about that. Lord, how is this going to look, what I'm contemplating doing? How is this going to look when I face you? And if you don't like the answer, then do something about it. You have no idea how much time you have. None of us does. But I assure you, it's not very long. Questions or discussion? Just a couple of passages with respect to the Bible, the first book. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. <clears throat> All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. 2 Peter 1, 19 to 21. So we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. 
But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no Scripture was ever made by an act of human will. But men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. Gentlemen, I don't know if you've recently read the Upper Room Discourse. It's in John's Gospel. It's, it's chapters 13 through 17. And it's the last, <clears throat> it's the last words of Jesus to his apostles before he goes to the cross. And one of the things that really stands out in that, <clears throat> in that section is the confusion of the disciples. Lord, where are you going? What, what, what do you mean? Why can't we go with you? What do you mean you're going to go and then you're going to come back? What, what are you talking about? And it's just the the whole thing, their response is puzzlement. So, one of the things Jesus says to them, he says, I have many more things to say to you, but you're not yet able to receive them. My question to you is, what were those many more things? Let me back up a pace. The Gospels record what Jesus did and said. What they do not record, or do so to only a very limited degree, is what it all meant. The many things that Jesus had to say to those guys are the epistles. And the epistles are necessary to understand the meaning of Jesus Christ in the gospel. Remove the epistles and there is no cohesion to the Christian faith. And man, I say this because it is precisely those epistles and particularly the works of Paul that the church is drawing lines through whole paragraphs and saying this doesn't apply, this doesn't apply. But I remind you men that humanly speaking, just humanly speaking, the Apostle Paul is the author of grace. If we did not have his writings, you would not understand what grace means. He develops that in his epistles. He does particularly so in Romans and in Galatians. But it's this same Apostle Paul whose writings about morality that we say don't apply. It might have been true in your day, Paul, but it's not true today. And gentlemen, you cannot have it both ways. If he's right about grace, he's right about the rest of it. And you cannot reject one and not put yourself in harm from rejecting the other. Reject his commandments and you may find yourself rejecting his grace. Not of your own free will, but because God says to you, depart from me, I never knew you you who practice lawlessness.
Any other discussion or questions? You guys are so dang easy. Holy moly. Okay. <clears throat> Let's talk about a biblical view of man. We are falling, fallen beings without any resources to do anything about it. We are helpless. The lie we have told ourselves is that we are masters of our own destiny. And that we are the measure of all things. We also believe things about one another that no one ever believed. Consider Genesis 1.27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Gentlemen, there's never been a generation in the history of the world that disbelieved that. There's men and there's women. The obvious is no longer true. Do you understand how fundamental a shift that is? Do you understand? Nobody's ever believed what we believe about this. It's the foundation on which every civilization has ever been built. The nuclear family is the foundation of every society. You know what I mean by nuclear family? Husband, wife, kids. There's not a lot of those around. And men, that is on purpose. The nuclear family was one of the central targets of this whole enterprise. Not a, I don't know if I want to I don't know if I want to take time to talk about this in any kind of detail. But let me point out to you that this didn't just happen. Ever since the, 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 this whole business of an attack on Christianity in earnest started in the Enlightenment. That's, that's an, a, a, an 18th century event. And the Enlightenment was about building a society based only on reason. And it was a, an attack specifically on the church and on the Bible. So that's the 1700s. Now that, there was an evolution to that thinking, all of it based on reason. And it evolved eventually in 1923 to a group of Marxists. And they were called the Frankfurt School because they started in Frankfurt, Germany. And they realized they, they were devoted Marxists, but they wanted to destroy Western civilization. And they were very explicit about it. 
And they set about to do that. They wanted to destroy Western Civ, and they wanted to destroy Christianity. They were all Jewish thinkers. And so when Hitler came to power in 1933, these guys left Germany and came to the United States. And they came to our universities. They came to places like Columbia, Brandeis. They came to places like UCLA. They came to Hollywood and began to influence the film industry. And again, their agenda was the destruction of Western civilization and Christianity. That movement became known as political correctness. And by the time the 60s rolled around, they had a whole generation of disciples that they had been teaching this stuff. And so the 60s was a Marxist revolution, but it was this cultural Marxism. That's where the ball really started to roll, and that's what's gotten us into where we are. Now, again, I don't want to talk in great detail about it. We've, we've covered that in other sessions, but are there any questions about that? Okay. My sense of, of the next step of, of where we're going is really about two things. One is overt demonism. We're on the threshold of that. Book of Revelation makes it very clear that that generation during the tribulation are the practitioners of demon worship. That's increasingly in our culture. And I think very soon it'll be accepted. The second direction that I think things are going is in a movement called transhumanism. What is meant by that is the integration of machines, including AI, with human beings. There's an interesting book <clears throat> by a guy by the name of um, John Lennox called 2084, as in 100 years after 1984. And he touches on some of these ideas and he weds uh, certain biblical uh, teachings with what he perceives to be this transhumanist movement. Um, and of course, transhumanism is all about what? It's about eternal life. It's trying to get the human race to live forever, at least some of us. You probably won't get there because you're not, you're not cool enough to be, to be transhuman. But Anyway, that's, that's the goal. And gentlemen, let me point out, when God scattered our race at the Tower of Babel, he said, if I don't do this, nothing will be impossible to him. And if the Lord tarries and we achieve this so-called immortality, at that point you become irredeemable. Yeah, Trevor. Sorry, buddy. 
are you, are you saying we become irredeemable because that's a way of obtaining the tree of life without? Yeah. Yes. That's why, that's why God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden, lest they eat from the tree of life. They do that, they become immortal, and now redemption is beyond the pale. So it sounds like you're saying that, that, that the, the devil for lack of a better term, or an accurate term, is supplanting and using the tenets of Christianity like immortality and good and evil and perverting it to his framework. Yeah, Ken, I would suggest to you that what we, what we have achieved, where, where we are right now, is that we have... <clears throat> We have a secular morality. I'll, I'll talk about that in a, a little bit. We have a secular morality with a Marxist worldview. And Marxism, from my perspective, is, is a Christian heresy. Now, he obviously rejects God, certainly Christ, and believes that, that people are physical beings only. His dream is the building of an earthly utopia. That's, that's eschatological. It's the bringing of heaven to earth, and hence that is a heresy of the real heaven that comes to earth in Revelation 21 and 22. Furthermore, it is eschatological and a heresy in the sense of the redemption of the race. He, he has a theory of how that takes place. Uh, and we, we can talk about that in a little bit. But it's, so it's a theory of salvation of man, and it is a theory of bringing utopia to earth. And Marx apparently tinkered with Christianity as a young man. But it uh, clearly did not take. But I, he, I, I don't know how many of these ideas he got directly from the Bible but he was familiar with the Bible, for sure. Essentially using our words against us. Twisting them. In other words, it's redemption and utopia without righteousness in Jesus Christ, which comes pretty close to hell on earth. Jerry, quick question. Um, you mentioned the Barna Group study with the biblical worldview and how you said 81% of believers most likely don't follow that. Evangelicals. Evangelicals. What, are, um, what would you say are some steps that we can check to make sure we don't fall into that 80%? couple of things. Got your Bible there? Yep. Step up to the mic, if you would, and read John 7, 17. Uh, 
John 7:17. 7, if anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak for myself. Do you understand what he's saying? So here you're reading your Bible, and you come across a commandment. And say it's a commandment like the one we were talking about earlier, about disciplining the willfully unrepentant Christian. And you read that and you say, well, I've never seen that done. Now you have a decision. Do you take the words of Jesus at face value? Or do you decide, well, I've never seen it done, so it mustn't be important. What Jesus is saying is, the only way you're going to know the truth is if you act <clears throat> on what I tell you. So you do it, and you're the Lone Ranger. Get used to it. But if, he, if you do it, he says, I will give you more. I'll keep feeding you. I'll keep feeding you. And again, my brother, every time you come across something with which you disagree or with which your church slash culture disagrees, you're at a holy moment. It's a moment that will have great import when you stand before Jesus. You've you got to make a decision. Anything else? Yeah, uh, you talked a little bit, I think, just recently about, like, devil, uh, like... Demonism? Yeah. Um, and you've also talked about um, kind of those who don't follow Christ not judging them. Um, I have a coworker who recently <laughs> has been talking about um, becoming a Satanist. Um, how would you, like, does that step outside of... Yeah, I don't know how to tackle that really. Um, it's in, he's not a believer. Not should I just show him Christ, or is there something additional there? Grab your Bible. Yeah. Go to Revelation chapter three. And start reading at verse 15. I know your works. You were neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot? So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. Okay. So he gives you three options. Cold, hot, lukewarm. How would you rank those? Which is the most desire from most desirable to least desirable? Um, hot, lukewarm, cold. Exactly. So the avowed Satanist is in a better position. He's cold because no. <laughs> sorry. Who gets spit out of his mouth? Lukewarm. Lukewarm. So hot is best. What's next? Then cold. Then cold. Okay, yeah. I'm lukewarm. So he's in a better place than the guy who thinks he's saved, who thinks all mm. is well. How do you convince a guy he needs Jesus if he says, I already know him mm. and doesn't do what he says? So pray for your friend. It's a spiritual battle. Yeah. And speak the truth to him in love and let the chips fall. All right. Thanks.
Anything else? Gentlemen, the problem with, oh, go ahead, Mitch. Sorry, Jerry. Um, can you expand on that a little bit, speaking the truth in love? From a, an observation perspective, I'm sure most of us have seen or even been part of times where we know the truth, want to speak the truth, speak the truth, but the truth does not come out in love, especially probably to the unbeliever. Can you expound on that a little bit? <clears throat> Mitch, it seems to me a lot of Christians resonate with the idea of righteous anger. Do you agree? I think it's James 1.20 where he says, the righteousness of God is not achieved by the anger of man. So there may well be times when, quote, righteous indignation, righteous anger is called for. I'm not sure my anger has ever been righteous. Maybe it happened once and I blinked and missed it. <laughs> but you see Jesus Sometimes, like, like for example, with the, the, the money changers, that appears to be anger. I don't know whether it was or not, but it looked like it. But then on the other hand, he's coming to Jerusalem for the last time before his crucifixion. He stands over the city. And remember what he says? Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you as a hen gathers her chickens, but you would not. He's mourning over their sin. So you can have a couple reactions to sin. You can get mad about it, or you can have compassion. I can't tell you which one you're supposed to have at any given moment. But we Christians probably do well. Again, the Bible admonishes us again and again to be tender-hearted. And as guys, we don't really like the sound of that too much. But we need to be tender-hearted toward one another and toward the unbelievers. They're lost. So what that blend, what that mix looks like, I can't tell you. But you need, you need both sides of that. There's no way you can speak the truth in love when you're angry. One more comment about anger. The book of, jo uh, book of Jonah is a great study on anger. Especially the fourth chapter. Jonah has gone, he's, he's had the most successful prophetic ministry of any prophet in the Old Testament. He goes to Nineveh preaches, and the whole stinking city converts. It's a home run. And he is so impressed by it that he goes up on a hill and sulks. He's mad at God. And so God comes to him. He says, what's up? 
And Jonah says, well, I knew you were going to do this, God. I knew you were going to save those guys. And God says, do you have just cause to be angry? Jonah doesn't answer it. So then the story gets really crazy. God sends this little bean plant to grow up by Jonah. And for reasons that absolutely defy my understanding, Jonah loves his bean plant. <laughs> I don't know how that works. But then God sends a wind and kills the bean plant. And Jonah is just... And so God asks him again, do you have good cause? And he says, you bet I do. I have good cause even unto death. I'm so mad. Now let me suggest that anger can move very, very quickly to sin. And when you feel justified in your anger, you've probably made that move. A man does well to evaluate his anger. And he does well to remember Lamentations 3, <clears throat> Lamentations 3.39. Why should any living mortal or any man offer complaint in view of his sins? So you've got to process anger before it, gets, before it bites you. Okay, gentlemen, time is up. Thank you, thank you.